0: I think it's picking up Andrew, so i just give you that if that's okay. That's great. Um, so we thought about the church, that body of believers that God has brought us into as his people, and now we come to one of the last ones, which is end times. And it's quite fitting as the last one to be the most controversial, so I get to go out with a bang to leave you with some controversy in your hands. But I'm only joking, I, I don't intend to be controversial at all. I, te- I intend to clarify. Some things, and uh, hopefully to give you a better understanding of what Scripture teaches about some things, so that even if you don't understand exactly how to put everything together, at least you'll understand some of the pieces that that come together. I must say as well that there are various topics of key teachings of the Bible that I have not covered in any detail. So for example, teachings about who we are as human beings, I, I just haven't really touched on that. Or the teachings of the Bible by angels and demons. Again, I haven't touched on that at all. So I confess, most freely, that I've completely skipped over some topics. So this is not an exhaustive survey, but hopefully it touches on some of the main ones. Anyway, the end times is known technically as eschatology. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, which just means last. So it's the study of the last things. And that's what we're going to be thinking about tonight. But before we... Think about getting to the very end, we need to think about the beginning. Because Mm -hmm. in the Bible, God's story of redemption, what he is doing to rescue us from the awful problem of sin, is not disconnected from the beginning. It's not like God starts at the beginning, and then everything goes wrong, and he says, well, it's broken, we'll need to go to plan B, and then suddenly God has some other plans. Rather, God creates this world, and it's good, and he creates good creatures, that is, human beings that he loves. And God's purpose, when that gets broken, is to restore all things, to bring it back to what it was supposed to be. Of course, it's not just rewinding the clock, so to speak, so that it's just the way it was at the beginning. It's better than what it was at the beginning. But at the same time, it is a restoration of all things, and the Bible regularly uses this word of restoration or renewal, speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. So it's very much focused on the idea that God isn't in the business of wrecking everything that he's done. God is in the business of restoring what has been broken by sin. And so we begin in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, 26, you'll see there that we read these words. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground and i think we need to notice the pattern that god establishes here god makes this beautiful creation and then he takes human beings mankind that he creates in his own image and he puts them as the rulers over his creation and this is the idea behind the idea of an image in the bible in the bible the word image is also used to refer to idols We you talk about false images of various gods it means that we represent God, we are God's image in this world, and we represent God's rule in this world. And just as God lovingly rules over us, we're supposed to extend that loving rule to all of creation. And it's not supposed to be understood as a domineering or oppressive rule so that we can just do what we want with the created world. It's supposed to be caring and protective, the way that God acts towards us as well. And then we come to Genesis 2, we see that God takes Adam and places him, places him in this garden that he has made, this garden of Eden, to work it and to take care of it. So this working and caring for the garden is part of Adam and Eve's responsibility as God's image bearers in the world. And we read that apparently God himself walks with them in the garden. Certainly after they sin, they hear the, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the middle of the day, and they're afraid because they realise that they are naked. But this pattern of God actually being with them, speaking to them, walking with them, is presumably something they've enjoyed throughout that whole period of time in which they were in the garden, a period of communion with God. And so God talks to them, God provides for them, and they're in this beautiful world. But the problem then comes that rather than listening to God and ruling over creation, caring for it and protecting it from evil, Actually, this evil snake comes along and subverts the created order, so that rather than Adam protecting the garden, he listens to this snake, uh, obviously embodying the devil, and he chooses to listen to that voice rather than to God's voice. And everything is subverted, and everything's turned in its head, and everything that was right about this world suddenly gets broken and twisted. And so the earth brings forth thorns and thistles. And God announces his judgment on Adam and even tells them that because they have done this and rebelled against him, then they're going to be cast out of the garden, away from God's presence. That There's going to be uh, no way for them to access the tree of life so they can experience life in God's presence because they've sinned. Um, And they no longer experience the presence of God, and they are told that they're going to die. And they're... Told that they are going to return to the dust from which they were created, and that life that they would have enjoyed with God forever is going to be brought to a crushing and final end. So that's the backdrop against which you have to understand the end times. God's plan isn't to to just leave things broken. God's plan is to restore all that's broken, to fix what is lost. And just as mankind was created to rule over God's creation, enjoying God's presence, the end of the story in the Bible is God restoring all that again. And mankind are going to rule over God's creation, and God's presence is going to fill the earth. So, have a look at a couple of verses here. Think about it firstly, man ruling over God's creation, and we wonder how is that going to be restored uh, at the end. And to, to see that, then you need to look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. And the writer, he's talking here in Hebrews about how Jesus is so much better than the angels. And in order to demonstrate that, he says, look, angels weren't given control over God's creation. Human beings were given control over God's creation. And so he shows that Jesus is actually the one that, as the perfect human being, has taken control over God's creation. And so he says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, and he quotes Psalm 2, What is mankind, that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus. Who was made lower than the angels for a little while, that he was made a human being, now he crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone and undo death for God's people. But notice especially the end of verse eight. Uh, the, writer has said, the writer says here that everything was put under humanity's rule. This was God's created order. And then he says, at present we do not see everything brought under their control, put in subjection to them. And as human beings don't enjoy the rule that God had planned for us over creation. It's not something that we see actually in its fullness. But, he says in verse 9, we do see Jesus. His point is that Jesus is the one who, because he has become a human being, the perfect human being, and lived that perfect life, died for us on the cross, tasted death for everyone, then, he is the one now crowned with glory and honour. And so, while human beings don't enjoy the rule that they once did, the Lord Jesus is the one who's been installed at God's right hand. And as he goes away to, his, to heaven, he tells his disciples that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He is the one who has taken the reins of the world. He's the one who's taken control again. As God, he was always in control the difference is that now he takes the reins of the universe as a human being and so that once again god's created order that mankind would rule over creation is being restored again and so all that adam lost is being fulfilled in jesus christ but notice the second thing as well not only does god restore the created order through mankind ruling through this perfect man jesus christ but we see God's presence coming to be with his people again. And so when you turn to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, we see John, and he's having a vision, and he sees a vision of the new creation at the very end, when God restores everything and puts everything right. And he sees this new city, the the New Jerusalem, he calls it, coming down from heaven. This is the, the city where God and his people can live together, and as he looks, he realizes that this is the sign that God has come back to be with his people. God has come back to dwell with them. And as part of this is the assurance that that all of the sadness in our world and all of the death that had come into our world through our disobedience has been removed and a new creation has begun. So listen to what John says. He says, Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That might sound a bit weird, but the sea is a symbol in the Bible of chaos, and it's being done away with. I saw the holy city the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And I just love that verse in verse 3, where it says, Look, behold, the dwelling place of God is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them. All that Adam had lost through His sin and rebellion, the presence of God itself, Is being restored back to God's people. to those who turn to God in repentance and faith, he brings them into this joyous privilege of being with him, of living with him in this new city forever. And thus we see the, the joyful time when all of the evil and sadness in our world is done away with and everything is put right. And so the point I'm trying to make is that the very end of the bible is a reversal of all that had gone wrong and it's a restoration of God's intentions for this world that he has created. He's he's fixing the brokenness of our world, restoring it to what it ought to be and the story of the bible is how God accomplishes this, how God brings about this great reversal, this great renewal of all things. Now the key to understanding this whole Scheme by which God brings everything under his control again and restores things back to the way it's supposed to be is this idea of God's reign, God's kingdom, God's authority in action by which he fixes the brokenness of our world. And God's kingdom was God's perfect reign over creation with humanity under him, ruling over this perfect world that he had created. And God's purpose then is to restore his reign and to restore his kingdom. And so the Old Testament is filled with these promises that God is going to bring his reign about, his kingdom about. So Daniel chapter 2, for example, a very interesting passage, because there's this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. He's a wicked king. He doesn't acknowledge God. And yet one night he has a dream. And he dreams a vision of a statue. And in this statue, you've got the statue made of various metals. The head is made of gold. And this is supposed to represent uh, a very important kingdom, a chest of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. No, we're not going to discuss what each of those kingdoms might represent because what's most significant is that then Daniel see, or Nebuchadnezzar actually sees the, in the vision a massive rock and the rock comes and crashes into the statue and smashes it to pieces and then this rock starts to grow, and grows so much that it fills the whole earth. And so Daniel, he gets called upon now to interpret this dream from Nebuchadnezzar, and he comes along, and he interprets the rock. And in chapter 2, verse 44 of Daniel, we read here these words. In the time of those kings, that's the kingdoms that had gone before all this, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Excuse me. Now, there are many other similar promises in the Bible, in the Old Testament. <coughs> this is one of the clearest ones. And I really love how it. Has this vision of God's kingdom which will far outstrip all the kingdoms of this world and will expand to the very ends of the earth. And so we see that God's purpose is to establish this everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed and God's reign will last forever. It fixes the brokenness of our world. Now with that in mind, we come to the New Testament. And what Jesus says here must be understood in light of everything that's been said previously. God is going to set up his kingdom. He's going to fix the brokenness of the world. And so Jesus begins his public ministry. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we read that after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. What is this good news? He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. The reign of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news that God's reign is near. So what Daniel had prophesied, Jesus is not proclaiming. The Jews who would have been listening to the Lord Jesus would have understood that when Jesus claims to be bringing about God's kingdom, this is what he was talking about. He was talking about God's reign. But what does he mean when he says that God's kingdom has come near. Now some people have suggested that it only came near in the sense that it was an opportunity for people, that if people repented and believed in the Lord Jesus, then Jesus would actually set up his kingdom and bring about this restoration of all things. But I don't think that's what Jesus means here. I don't think he's just saying there's the possibility that you can have the kingdom if you listen to me. I think Jesus means that because he, the king, is there, then it's near, because he is there. He is the one that represents God's authority in earth. And Jesus says as much then in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28. He says, if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom has come upon you. Precisely because Jesus... In his presence, as the king is demonstrating, that he is in control. And the devil and all of the destruction that he is causing is being stopped. But the surprising thing about Jesus and the kingdom of God is that Jesus did not establish the kingdom of God in its fullness. Everything that was promised in the Old Testament did not come completely true to the coming of Jesus. In some sense, bits were coming true. So, for example, he raised the dead, but not all of the dead, and people still died. He healed the sick, but people still got sick and died. He restored people's lives, gave them forgiveness of sins and renewal, and yet people still lived with the presence of sin in their lives. And you've got this tension between Jesus coming along, announcing God's reign, fixing things, and yet it's not completely fulfilled. And what this means is that the the reign of God that was promised at the end of human history begins in the middle of history with the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. And even though it hasn't reached its final fulfillment, it has dawned, it has started. And just like you see the dawn, the sun creeping up over the horizon. And you know that the day is going to dawn. So also, when you see Jesus arriving in the scene and doing all of these miracles, people were able to say, look, God's final plan is coming to pass. Not completely yet, but the day is coming because the dawn has come. And that means then that our experience of the Christian life is one in which all of the blessings of the future start to come true now one of the things I've tried to emphasize in this series. Things like justification, being declared right before God. It's God's verdict that he's going to give at the end, and he announces it in the middle of history. Eternal life, the life that we will enjoy in the presence of God for all eternity, starts now in in our lives. The Spirit of God, the promise that God will come and live with his people, begins now in his people. And so all of these things that in the Old Testament are things that happen at the very end of history, happen for us. In the middle of history, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that then means that we have the assurance that just as things have dawned, everything will come to pass in in fulfilment, and it means that we presently live in the last days, because all that was promised in the Old Testament about the last days, the end of the end of history, has started to become true, and that's what the writer of Hebrews says here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, when he says that in these last days, God has spoken to us in Son, and the appointed heir of all things. And so for the writers of the Hebrews, these are the last days, because God's purposes have come to fulfilment, and God's Son has become the heir of all things. He's been appointed the one who will take control of everything. He will take the reins of the universe. And yet, even as God's reign has begun, his kingdom has begun. There's so much that's still left to be fulfilled. Christ reigns. He says that he's got authority in heaven and earth. But we don't yet see every ruler and authority on this world submitting themselves to Jesus Christ. We experience so many blessings now, eternal life, renewal, but still await the resurrection of our bodies. And the eradication of death in our world so we're waiting for the consummation so when christians think about the end times usually they jump straight to the things that will happen prior to the return of jesus christ but the reason why i've stressed so much as preliminary the the fact that we currently live in the last days is to highlight the point that for us everything that we experience by the christian life is is eschatology, for want of a better word. It is end times. The end times have dawned in our lives. And that's the assurance that everything's going to come to pass. But now I want to think briefly about what's going to happen in the future. From our standpoint, what's yet to take place before Jesus comes back? Well, we're going to start putting those pieces together. And this will just be a sketch. So if I miss out lots of details, that's okay, and you afterwards. But first of all, we know that Christ will come again. Acts chapter 1, it's already been mentioned during our meeting, after the disciples see Jesus taken away into heaven, the angels appear and say that Jesus will come again. So we see there in Acts chapter 1, angels say, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And so just as Jesus departed visibly from them, the angels say that Jesus will return visibly and people will see him. Um, the fact that he goes into heaven isn't supposed to make us imagine that somehow heaven is up there in a geographical space, so much as to stress to us that it's not part of this world. If we want to use modern terminology, we might even say it's another dimension. It's an aspect of reality that what we actually can't see. Um, and this is where Jesus has gone. And and so we don't need to get worked up about you know uh, about silly questions why like, is heaven a physical place somewhere within this universe? It's it's not within this universe um, simply because it's it's not a physical place like like we know it. Nevertheless, Jesus is there physically and we are assured people come again physically. And so, we know that Jesus will come back again from this realm of heaven and will set up his kingdom here on earth. And secondly, we can say that when Jesus Christ returns, he will come again to be the judge of all people. When Paul is in Athens, he's preaching to a lot of Greeks who know nothing about God. And he tells them in Acts 17 and 31... That God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And again, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. And this is a very solemn thought on the one hand and a really joyful thought on the other hand. It's solemn because we read here of a judgment whereby people will be punished with everlasting destruction. Those who have rejected God's rule, who have said, we do not want god's reign in our world or in our lives they are shut out from god's reign and they have no part in the restoration of all things which jesus christ comes to bring about but on the other hand those who who rejoice in the coming of jesus christ we read that when we see jesus coming we will marvel at him because we'll be so impressed by how great and splendid he is And we'll realize that our our thoughts about Jesus were far too small, and that he is far greater than we ever imagined. And we are the ones then that will enter into the joy of his reign, having already embraced his reign in our lives here in the present. And so if we wanted a nice diagram of this, um, we could put it all in a diagram like this. So you've got the beginning of creation, and then, (coughs) the beginning of creation, and you've got the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, That's the dawning of the kingdom, if you will. And then you've got the second coming at the end of history, brings about God's kingdom, God's reign, and the final judgment. Now, this is all quite basic stuff. This is the stuff that we all agree on. But then we need to start filling in some of the gaps. And this is where things can get a little bit more tricky. But let me try and be non-controversial. So we know, for example... (coughs) Excuse me. For example, in Romans 11, Paul seems to say to us that in the future there will be the salvation of many Jews. So, currently, most Jewish people do not embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They think that Jesus was a guy that lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, but he was a liar, a deceiver, and he was crucified because the Romans thought he was a criminal but paul explains this in romans chapter 9 through 11 and says that the reason for this is because god has put a, a hardness of heart a blindness on the jewish people because of their rejection of jesus christ god has said so for this period of time you will not be able to see the truth and so he says chapter 11 25 i do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery a mystery of something which hadn't been revealed previously it's not being revealed don't need you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you'll not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So what he's explaining is that currently the Jewish people are experiencing this hardening as a punishment from God prevent prevented from fully saying the truth of the gospel. But Paul says that after the full number of the Gentiles have come in, so that's non-Jews, after their full number has been completed and all the Gentiles have been saved, that God intends to save, then after that, all Israel will be saved. Now, presumably he doesn't mean here every single Israelite, but so many Israelites that we can say all Israel has been saved through this. And since this happen happens after the fullness of the Gentiles or the full number of the Gentiles has been saved then presumably it happens towards the end. But, on the one hand, we've got this joyful expectation that many Jews will come to receive Jesus as the Messiah and trust in him. We also know that there's going to be much evil in the world towards the very end. Paul, he writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, of an antichrist that will come at the end of time. And this antichrist is one who stands against Jesus Christ and demands that he be worshipped like jesus christ so look at what paul says here he says concerning the coming of our lord jesus christ and our being gathered together to him we ask you brothers and sisters not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us whether by a prophecy or by a word of mind or by a letter asserting that the day of the lord has already come don't let anyone deceive you in that way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So what had happened, at Thessalonica, some rumours had arisen, and he he talks about this. Somehow, people had been told that Jesus Christ had come back, and the day of the Lord had already happened. And this confused a lot of Christians. They were like, what is going on? and paul assures them that no this has not happened because that will not happen until the man of lawlessness known in first john as the antichrist actually comes first and so he's called the antichrist like i said because he opposes god he stands against jesus christ and he demands to be worshipped and he he demands to be worshipped in the temple of god some people have suggested then that this means that before the end there will be a rebuilding of the temple that's a possibility. Alternatively, um, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul refers to the church as God's temple, and some people have said that actually it's the church that he's going to stand up in and proclaim himself to be God. Either way, this man, whoever he is, demands to be worshipped because he thinks that he is great and mighty, and he is going to stand in the place of Jesus Christ. Paul also refers to here as the rebellion or the falling away as this time in which many people will turn against God. Also, we could refer to this period as tribulation, or trouble. And this is a period of time, uh, other passages in Scripture speak about it, a time of intense difficulty in this world where many bad things will happen. And we, we've seen a little bit of that as Jesus helped us go through the book of Revelation. So, if we want to add that to our, like, our little diagram, then we might then say that That before Jesus Christ comes back again, yet ahead of us, there's going to be an antichrist and subsequent, or along with that, you're going to have tribulation, all kinds of bad things happening in the world, people turning against God and great rebellion. But alongside that, you're also going to have the salvation of Jews. So you're going to have this intensification of evil and intensification of God's work in actually rescuing people who are, are blinded. But there's other things that we can add in here too so what other bits and pieces can we add in well i've spoken here a little bit about this this tribulation this time of trouble and the antichrist is going to appear there are some verses in the bible that suggest that believers won't experience this time of trouble that's going to come in the world revelation chapter 3 verse 10 jesus speaks to the church in philadelphia and he says to them there since you have kept my command to endure patiently I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, how could Christians be kept from the hour of trial? It's possible, I guess, that God could protect us from the hour of trial by preventing those, those judgments actually falling on us. But many Christians have argued that it doesn't just say that God will protect us from punishment, it says that God's going to protect us from the hour of trial, that time of trial. So how could God actually do that? And so on the basis of this and other passages, Christians have argued, many Christians have argued that Jesus will come back to rescue his people before this time of trouble actually begins. And this is what's known as the rapture. The rapture is a word which means catching up. Uh, They believe that we'll be caught up to meet the lord in the air and this is what paul talks about in first thessalonians chapter 4 and we will refer to this as the pre-tribulation rapture because it happens before the tribulation and so we read about this in 1 thessalonians chapter 4 and paul says in verse 16 the lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of god and the dead in christ will rise first After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And many Christians have pointed out that, that this isn't describing Christ coming back to earth to reign, but this is describing Christians being caught up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. And so at this point, Christians, whether alive or dead, caught up to be with the lord jesus and we enter into the presence of christ forever but this would then need to be distinguished from the return of christ to establish his kingdom because christ comes to earth to set up his kingdom um and this catching up would happen before the tribulation and so if we decided to put that into our little diagram we can see that this would have christians being caught up before the tribulation starts is in Revelation 3.10 and other passages, we spend that time in heaven and then come back with Jesus Christ to set out his kingdom on earth. And on earth, then, is a period of intense persecution and difficult tribulation. Meanwhile, Jews are saved through God's grace and removing their blinding. Now, not all Christians agree with this distinction between the rapture and the second coming, and they would put them together. And this is known as the post-tribulation rapture. This idea that actually, at the very end of time, that Jesus Christ will come, will catch his people up, and come back with them to win. And I simply note that as a variation. But there's one other big issue that we need to deal with. Our diagram is not yet complete, but don't worry, it shall not get much more complicated. The millennium is an expression which simply means a thousand years. Um, celebrated the millennium year 2000, or at least most of us did, they were alive. Were you alive in 2000? No, so, Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so millennium is a thousand years, and the Bible speaks about this thousand years in Revelation chapter 20, and we need to fit this into our diagram. So let's read it in Revelation 20, and um, not too small, that's good. It says... And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient snake, who is the devil or Satan and bind him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And i saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about jesus and because of the word of god they had not worshiped the beast which is another expression for the antichrist or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands they came to life and reigned with christ for a thousand years the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended this is the first resurrection so where do we put all of this well, notice that when John's describing this in verses one to three, he describes what happens to the devil. The Devil and um, process of deceiving the nations gets locked up and stopped from deceiving the nations for one thousand years. And then after that, he gets released for a short time. We're going to read, in, uh, you can read in verse seven of that same chapter how he then launches this rebellious attack against God's people when he's finally released, and then he's finally vanquished after that. Meanwhile, this. As this thousand years is the period of time by which the devil is restrained, we read in verses 4 and 5 that those who have not worshipped the beast or the Antichrist, but had been killed because of their devotion to Jesus, they are actually given the privilege of reigning with Christ. They come to life and they reign with Christ for one thousand years. And the rest of the dead, presumably those who have rejected Jesus, They don't come to life again until the end of the thousand years. And so John distinguishes between the first resurrection, those who come to life and reign with Jesus Christ, and the the next resurrection, which is presumably then a resurrection to be judged because we've rejected the Lord Jesus. And so we can add this to our little diagram. And so in our diagram, which is now looking a little bit complicated, we can see that there's a thousand year period Uh, which means that Satan is bound for a thousand years, stopped from deceiving the nations, and then at the end of those thousand years launches this rebellion against God's people. But if Satan launches this rebellion against God's people at the end of the thousand years, that means there needs to be some rebellious people. So where do these rebellious people come from? And one is forced to suggest that it must be Jews that get saved During um, this little bit in the middle, let me see if I get my pointer and uh, do my pointer. Yeah, so, yeah, this little bit in the middle, we see the salvation of the Jews. Uh, Presumably, what happens is they get saved, and then when Jesus comes back, they're not immediately resurrected but enter into the millennium in natural bodies, procreate, have children, and then after several generations, presumably these children become rebellious and are incited by the, the devil to actually go against Jesus Christ. But why um, do many Christians think the millennium is an important aspect of Christian teaching? Well, there's various reasons why Christians believe that it's important. One reason is that it means that on this physical earth in which Jesus Christ was rejected, it means that he also would be glorified and will reign, and people will see his reign in that very place where he was rejected. Sorry, pop-up on my phone there just appeared. Another reason why it's important uh, to, to think about this millennial issue is in reference to the promises made in the Old Testament. The Old Testament made various promises that the Jewish people would inherit a particular portion of land in the Middle East and provides quite clear boundaries for that land. And if those promises are to be fulfilled exactly, then it's, is arguably the case that you need this period of time before the earth is renewed in its completeness in which the Jews can actually receive that promise. But more generally, it provides a demonstration of the fact that even when people are under the best rule available, the reign of Jesus Christ itself, they still turn against God. And so the corruption of people's heart is such that even in the best of conditions, they'll still turn against him. Still, not all Christians agree with this idea of the millennium, and these are known as amillennialists. A just means no. But it's not strictly true to say that they don't believe in the millennium. They believe that this description that John gives us in Revelation chapter 20 is very symbolic. They believe that this thousand-year reign takes place in heaven, and it's a symbolic period of time, and those who die... Um, and are with Christ even now, reign with Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, here on earth, they, they would argue that the devil is restrained from deceiving the nations because the gospel is going forward into all the nations and people are being saved from every tribe and tongue, and people and nation. And so it takes a more symbolic reading of that chapter. But the view that I've got here is known as premillennialism because it believes that Jesus comes before the millennium. Now then, given the complexity of all of these issues that I've described, you can see why Christians sometimes get bogged down in discussions over what happens and when, in what precise order. And it's been a regular occurrence through church history that Christians will excommunicate other Christians that don't see eye to eye on them, on exactly how this all pans out. Still, um, The danger of such discussions is that we lose sight of all that we hold in common as Christians, because there's much more that holds us together than what divides us. Specifically, we know that all Christians believe that Jesus Christ will come again. Hebrews 9:28 describes us as those who are waiting for Him. Waiting for Jesus Christ to come back. Paul in Second Timothy chapter four and verse eight thinks of his own departure, his own death. And he longs for that day when he will be with Jesus Christ. And he says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me in that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. He's not just referring to a special category of Christians here who long for or love the appearing of Jesus Christ. This is the definition of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means that we live with a foretaste of all that's yet to come, but longing that we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes to be revealed in his glory. We've experienced something of the love of God towards us, but we long for the full manifestation of that when Jesus Christ will come to be with us. And we've already thought a little bit about the fact that this longing to be with the Lord Jesus is mutual. The Lord Jesus, before he went away, said that he wanted us to be with him where he was so that that we would see his glory. And so there's a mutual longing between the Lord Jesus and his people. We want to be with him and he wants to be with us. And so this return of the Lord Jesus Christ shouldn't be understood as some... Awful, abstract reality for Christians, but ought to be something which we eagerly look forward to the day when we will be with our Savior Jesus Christ. But this, this waiting, this longing for lovingly appearing in Jesus Christ, is not just passively sitting down, twiddling our thumbs and saying, Well, let's just wait and see when he comes, because that would be the wrong approach. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reflects on the reality of the resurrection, the knowledge that he has that Jesus Christ will return and restore. Uh, this world and will uh, raise us from the dead, give us resurrected bodies, new bodies in which we can live in the new creation. And at the end of that chapter, he says in chapter 15:58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, in view of all of that, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's the thing, isn't it? Because we know all of this is true. Because we know all of this is going to happen. And it means that our labour is not in vain it's not for nothing, it's not insignificant precisely because everything that we do matters because Jesus Christ is the one who sees it and is going to reward us for it at the end that means that everything that we do in life, not just coming to church, everything that we do in life is done for the Lord he sees it and will reward his people as they live faithfully for him until that day when he comes again so everything that we do, because it's done, because we love the which he says, is an act of service and devotion to him. And so that longing to be with him then doesn't remove from us the concerns of the present, but motivates us to live each day in the light of his return, knowing that our lives here are significant now, because there is a future in which everything will be put right. So may God help us to live as those people who long for and love the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Let's just bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for this glorious assurance that one day we will be with Jesus. Thank you for the love that he has shown us. Thank you for the cross by which he demonstrated that he loves us more than we could ever imagine. And because of that, our longing and expectation is for that day when we will be with the one who loves us. So help us then, Father, as we live day by day, to live as those who recognise that everything is significant because our Lord Jesus is coming again, because he sees all that we do. So we ask, Father, that you would help us to be those people that will bring joy to you and joy to the Lord Jesus at his appearing, as we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.